0: Redemption, being redeemed, (coughs) is passive. It's not active. In other words, you being redeemed has nothing to do with you and everything to do with the work and will of God. By the way, my name is Joe Davis. I'm the lead teaching pastor here at the Garden. In the next two weeks, we're going to be tying two very intense, deep theological parables together. The first one this week is on the parable of the servants in the field. Lori did a good job of teaching the kids that earlier. And next week we're going to be talking about the parable of the marriage feast, which is probably one of the most loaded theologically, one of the most loaded parables that Jesus teaches. There's so much in there, so much. So if you can write this down somewhere or put it in your smartphone as a reminder, I would love for you to each read Matthew 22 and Luke 14 this coming week. It's both of those are the same story, but they give different perspectives on it. And there's so much in there. The reason it's important for you to read it this week, there's so much in there. There is no way that I can teach it to you in 25 minutes next week without you reading it first. But I think it's pivotal to the whole concept of what Jesus teaches and how it impacts the way Paul teaches throughout his epistles. Matthew 22 and Luke 14. And if you want to go to heaven, you will read it this week. So, grace is unfair. Grace is not fair. As a matter of fact, grace should have us grabbing and pulling our hair out. Because it makes, exactly, (laughs) it makes no sense. Everything about grace turns everything we understand about righteousness on its ear. It it stands it on its head. It's kind of like, you know, a negative times a negative is a positive kind of thing. Well, with grace, it takes anything mathematical, anything systematical, Anything reliant upon us and destroys it. <clears throat> Unfair. I just found this picture on the internet contrary to laws. And that really captures what Jesus is teaching in Matthew 20, verses 1 through 16. I'm going to read the parable to you, but I'm not going to put the first part of the passage up on the screen. I'm only going to do verses 10 through 16 on the screen. So if you want to follow along with me, it's Matthew 20, verses 1 to 16. You can just listen. It's okay. And then I'll put the last six verses on the screen. For the kingdom of heaven is like. Now, whenever Jesus starts something with that phrase, the kingdom of heaven is like. Here's what he's saying. Here's what you used to think, and here's what you should think now. Whenever you hear the phrase, the kingdom of heaven is like, and it's all through Matthew, we've already talked about it a few times, Jesus is saying, you used to think this way, but that's done away with. There's a new kingdom. So keep that in mind. The kingdom of heaven is like a master of the house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. And after agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into the vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace and said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I'll give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. About the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing, and he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. And he says, go into the vineyard as well. And the evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call all the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. Beginning with the last up to the first. The phrase, the first shall be last, the last shall be first, occurs multiple times in the book of Matthew. And he says, start with the last and go to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, they all received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received the denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, these last worked only one hour, and you made them equal to us. You have borne the burden of the day. We have borne the burden of the day in the scorching heat. We we deserve more. We've been here all day working and slaving and doing all this stuff, and you only give us a denarius? Then the master of the vineyard applies to one of them, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, And the first, last. Now, remember the context of the book of Matthew. What this passage is teaching us is actually what it's teaching the Jewish readers. Remember, Matthew is not written to you as a Gentile. It has things in it that apply to us, but it is not written to us. And here is what is being written to the Jewish readers. God will give grace to those whom many Jewish people would deem unfit or undeserving. He starts the parable with the kingdom of heaven is like, and whenever he does that, what he's about to teach is this, this is how I am building my new kingdom, which is different from the kingdom of whatever it is you think it should be. And this parable is teaching us that God will treat Gentile believers the same as Jewish believers. There is no special love that God has, no apple of his eye, where he favors one race of people over another in his kingdom. There is no special place for those who worshiped in the temple all their lives or kept the law or the rules of the Pharisees. It's not Jewish believers and then Gentile believers. It's just believers. All receiving the same grace, forgiveness, favor, and benefits. This turns all of their preconceived ideas about the kingdom of God on its head. And the parable about the laborers in the vineyard is about the first and last... The parable itself displays a reversal of expectations, if you will. He's trying to change the expectations of what the kingdom of heaven is like. The last shall be first, the first shall be last. This is not only a summary of the parable, but in reality, it is a critical aspect, a central theme in New Testament theology. Now, can you imagine if you were a Jewish person hearing this parable, how would it seem to you? The fact that the kingdom is a result of generosity, he says, why would you begrudge my generosity? It's a result of generosity and not wages earned. To a Jewish person, this would first of all seem scandalous. You mean Romans who have never respected the prophets or Moses Or the temple can be in the kingdom? That's a scandal. It's ridiculous. Those Romans who have taken over our country, who run Jerusalem, they have a part in the kingdom too? To a Jewish person, this would seem scandalous. It's also a reversal of traditional expectations. You mean you won't rescue us from these Romans? You mean to tell me that not only are you not going to smite them and destroy them, you're going to make us all one family? One kingdom? What, are we going to merge? McDonald's with Burger King? Coke with Pepsi? Gators and Seminoles together? It's also a crushing of hopes for a life that was built around trying to be righteous under the law. Follow what I'm saying here? You mean to tell me all this work in keeping the laws of the Pharisees was in vain? Do you mean to tell me that if I do all this stuff that the Pharisees told me to do, that the temple says to do, I do all these things in the end, I get the same grace and mercy, and forgiveness as a Roman soldier? Are you kidding me? I expected so much more. I had my whole life built around this concept of the first shall be first. But now you're telling me us, the Jews who were first, we were first, we will be last? And the ones who were last, the Romans, the Gentiles, will be first? And lastly, you know how else a Jewish believer at the time would see it, or a Jewish reader? It's a slap in the face of human ability to love and serve God. You mean I can't help myself? Remember the parable of the rich young ruler? And he says, what must I do to inherit heaven? Jesus says, keep the law, do this, do that, do that, do that, do that. Oh, I've done all that, what else? Jesus says, silly silly rich young ruler, sell everything you got and give it to the poor. The scripture says he went away sad because he had a lot it's a slap in the face of human ability basically what happens is this when it comes to motives for personal righteousness and ethnic purity do you remember how the jews would have such disdain for the samaritans because they weren't pure jewish do you remember that When it comes to motivation for personal righteousness or ethnic purity, what Jesus did was turn it all on its ear. The motives could no longer be for righteousness. Your motives for living a righteous life could no longer be for blessing. Your motives for righteousness could no longer be for reward or position in heaven. Remember what the disciples asked Jesus who will be first in heaven? Righteousness should no longer be motivated by blessing, reward, or position. Now the motivation for righteousness could be one thing, guys, listen, and one thing only, a love and appreciation and a reaction to the generosity the Savior has granted to all members of his kingdom in equal amount, regardless of station, regardless of citizenship, regardless of performance, and regardless of race. Favor, generosity, grace, these are all the same words and principles in the New Testament. Did you know that? So whenever you see the word favor or generosity, Or grace as it relates to Heavenly Father dealing with His people. It's all the same concept. Grace means undeserved favor. Favor is always undeserved. So I have some things I want you to look at. I want you to understand that the kingdom of God is not a meritocracy. And here's the problem. A lot of Christians, even though they say they believe in salvation by grace, through faith, and it's not works, they say that. For some reason, they still develop this system of kingdom meritocracy. What do I mean by meritocracy? That you earn merit by how good you are. Guys, none deserve his favor. Not the guy who started work early in the morning and not the guy who worked the last hour of the day. No one deserves his favor. No one can earn his favor. And you know what else? No one can enhance. <laughs> His favor You can't deserve it, you can't earn it, and you can't, by some act of your own, make it better for you than someone else. You know what else? This is going to make some of you upset. No one can appeal for his favor. That doesn't seem fair, does it? I mean, I can't even ask for favor? Well, no, then it's not favor. Then it's not grace. It's given. Some more things I want you to look at. Grace does not, listen carefully, grace does not demand response, but it creates it. Do you understand the difference? Look, here's the offer, now choose. No, no, grace is this. This is grace, and it creates a response. It's all about grace, not us. Grace does not require reciprocity. In other words, it doesn't require you to pay it back, but it does motivate it. You see the difference? Grace is not saying, oh, look, I've given you grace. Now, if you're going to keep it, this is what you, no. Grace does not demand reciprocity, but it motivates it when you receive grace and you understand it in the book of james we did this study on james for months it teaches this if god has really given you grace the natural result of that will be a desire for you to see it lived out in your life grace does not require reciprocity but it motivates it it does not demand response but it creates it grace does not calculate spiritual success but causes it. Do you see the difference? Grace does not keep score. Grace does not say, okay, you deserve it and you don't, and you would take it if you would just accept it, but you have it, but he has, so he gets it. That would be keeping score. Grace does not calculate spiritual success. There's not a checklist. Well, he we gave him grace, but what did he do with it? No, grace does not calculate success, but it causes it. James teaches us that as well. Grace does not need to be measured, calculated, or evaluated. Here's what I mean by that. No one receives more or less. It's all distributed equally. If you think someone needs more grace than you, you miss the whole concept of what grace is in the first place. You miss the whole concept of the first shall be last and the last shall be first. Boy, you know, God sent me when I was a kid, and that's great, but this person here is an addict, and they really need grace. Oh, really? You need it just as much as anyone else. Not anymore, not any less. And I don't care how good of a Presbyterian you are. I don't care how often you come to the garden. Well, I do care, but not when this comes. (laughs) You need just as much grace as Hitler would have. That's not fair, is it? That's scandalous. Is that offensive to you? Does that offend you? If you think someone else needs more grace than you, you've missed the whole concept. Grace is not only outside of man's efforts, but it's also outside of man's will. It goes even to the idea of to whom favor is extended in the first place. God has the sovereign right, according to the parable we just read, God has the sovereign right to grant favor to whoever he wants, however he wants, whenever he wants. And by human nature, this is the problem with this theology, right? By human nature, we want to control God's grace. We want to manage it. We want to conform it to our vision of what it is. We want to conform it to our perspective of how it should be administered, how it should be applied. This is why the doctrine of God's sovereignty and salvation grates against our very human nature. The idea that God... Chooses whom he will have favor instead of man choosing if he will receive God's favor is so demeaning to us personally, not just in our salvation, but in the role that we play in the salvation of others. Does that make sense? It's so demeaning to us to say, wait a second, you're telling me that I don't play a role in God's grace to me or God's grace to others. Well, you can play a role in God's grace to others, but it's only by God's grace that you can play a role in his grace to others. Does that make sense? God gives you grace to be an instrument of grace. For he prepared you for good works beforehand that you should stumble over. Remember that, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10? For by grace you've been saved through faith, even that faith is not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. Or else you'd brag. For he has created us. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that we should stumble over. What shall we say then? Is there injustice or unfairness on God's part? By no means, for he says to Moses, "I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, I will have compassion upon whom I will have confession. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. It doesn't say God who is the one who holds mercy? But it's been on God who will have mercy. Who will get mercy. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable? In other words, doesn't the potter have the right to make one that people use to go to the bathroom and one that people eat on? That's what that means, by the way. Honorable and dishonorable. You understand the difference? Doesn't the potter have the right to make one for honorable use and one for dishonorable? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath, prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy or honor, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also the people who came in the last hour. The Gentiles. I don't like those verses very often. They're quite troubling, aren't they? No, 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 it it must mean something else. It has to be. No, no, what's the Greek really say? (laughs) What's it say in the original languages? It says that. Darn it. Man, it sucks. Or does it? You know... Here's the problem with this theology of God's sovereignty. Look, and I'm with you. I struggle with this too. When I was in college, I fought this tooth and nail for the first three years I was in undergrad. Matter of fact, I was the one that told the professors teaching me this that they were nuts off their rock or idiots and didn't know the Bible. I was the one that all the other students would go to, Joe, tell me how to argue against Dr. Brown and Dr. Oliver and Dr. Carver. And I'd give them all the verses and they'd go in and they'd get slapped down by these professors who know the Bible and You were wrong, Joe. No, I wasn't. Yes, you were. Oh! Yes. You have nothing to do with your grace. Darn it. (laughs) Guys, most of us really don't understand the literary, intellectual, philosophical, mathematical, and almost logical implications of the idea of the first shall be last and the last shall be first. It turns all of our preconceived notions of justice and fairness and grace on its ears. It is the total reversal of everything every other religion in the world teaches. No other religion teaches it has nothing to do with man's effort. All of them teach to some degree, man's got to do this, man's got to do that, man's got to do the other. And, you know, God will do this much, but man, you've got to take this step. Christianity is the only religion that teaches it has nothing to do with you and everything to do with dad. You know what the ultimate test of truth is? I've told you this before. When you hear a theology, ask yourself yourself this question. Does it give man any credit? If it does, it's a lie. Period. That's the ultimate test. Run it through that prism. If it takes away any shred of God's glory, it's a lie. So with that in mind, I'm trying to figure out the way to I mean, some of this can be discouraging, but it can also be encouraging, right? Because you know that your salvation is not contingent upon how smart you are, or how good you hear, or how well you understand. It's contingent upon the favor granted by the owner of the vineyard, who gives generosity according to whom he wills. So this is the way I would put it. God's generosity, favor, or grace is not imparted based upon man's decisions, opinions, or efforts. Do you understand that? God's generosity, his favor, and his grace is not imparted based upon man's decisions, opinions, or efforts. But instead, it's dispensed in spite of man's decisions, opinions, and efforts. Isn't that awesome? That God's grace is not contingent upon your decisions, your opinions about grace, even when they're wrong. I love that. Even when we don't understand what grace is really about, it's still given to us. In spite of our decisions, in spite of our opinions, in spite of our efforts, God's sovereign power cuts through all the crap. It cuts through all the garbage. It cuts through the false teaching, and it says, I'm giving you undeserved favor in spite of how hard you've tried to work for it.